Proverbs 16, verse 20, he who heeds the word wisely will find good. And whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. He who heeds the word wisely will find good. And whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for your word. It's a lamp and it is a light. And we are going to leave here today happy not because of circumstances, but in spite of them, because we're choosing it today. In Jesus' name, and all God's men and women said, amen. Now turn to your neighbor and say, you've lost weight, and go ahead and sit down. We're going we're gonna to start your faith off right. Again, thank you so much for coming, and I just want you to know how much we appreciate all of you that are here today. Thank you for being here, and I want you to know today, uh, Jerry, that guy right there, see Jerry, he's single. He's ready to mingle. So ladies, he's looking for love, and we're going to try to find it in all the right places. Now, I am teasing, but not really. I want you to think about something, because happiness is really an inside story. Happiness is what's called the fragrance of an obedient life. Happiness first comes in us, and then it radiates from us. So in other words, it starts within us, and then it radiates from us. That's what happiness is. It isn't our positions that make us happy. It is our dispositions that makes us happy. It's not where we are that makes us happy. It is what we are that makes us happy. And I believe that happiness really comes when we stop worrying about all the trouble we have and we start to thank God for the trouble we don't have. The explanation for the word happiness is necessary because happiness in the old English translation starts the word hap and it gets to the word chance. So in other words, happiness in the English, how you and I would know it, and it ain't Cinco de Mayo yet, Odele, it's not yet, next week. Happiness is the English translation of chance based on happenstance. So if you're looking at happiness with a world type of happiness, it's based upon chance or happenstance. So you really can't be happy because your life is full of circumstances, some good, some bad. But that's not God's word for happiness. It's not happenstance. God's word is makarios. Makarios means to be supremely blessed by God. That's the word for happiness that God has, not chance or happenstance, but makarios, the supreme blessing by God. Let's say it together. The supreme blessing by God. That comes in every area of your life, no matter what happens. What that simply means is when you're going through the greatest trial of your life, you can be happy no matter what happens. It endures the storms of life. To be supremely blessed of God gives you the ability to have absolute victory in the lion's den. When the enemies come and ridicule you and attack you and say, haul hurtful mantle of evil about you, even post it on on Facebook. When they come against you, the supreme happiness is God. It's there for you. Even though you're going through the fiery furnace, you'll come out the other side without the smell of smoke upon you. God's happiness, supreme blessing, it's rock solid. It gives you the song in the midnight hour, just like Paul and Silas, to sing with joy, even in a difficult situation. It gives you the ability to walk through the fiery furnace and come out on the other side, still happy, without smell smoke on you. It gets you in the lion's den. Even though the lions have been starved for three days, they're not going to harm you. You're going to lay down on a fur-lined couch because God's happiness, it's not because of, it is in spite of the supreme blessing of God. Can we give the Lord a hand clap if we're happy because God's words are not our words? 
And I say that literally because God's happiness is not this world's happiness. It's in spite of. It's a shield and a buckler, the supreme blessing of God. It's your fortress in the day of battle. It's where you run into and you find refuge and you find strength. That means happiness, when that translation comes, requires change. It really does. If you don't have that supreme blessing to run into the strong tower when difficulty comes, then you need to change. It requires change. That's true happiness when you decide to change some things. If you have a temperament that's kind of gloomy or maybe melancholy or full of self-pity, if you're always choosing to be isolated, cheated, always expecting the worst, this is what I would call stinking thinking. You got bad thinking. You've got to change your thinking because you and you alone determine that it is what you think about. You have to change your thoughts. Therefore, you'll change your world. Then you will change the world. But it begins with you. You have to learn to think upon the good things. That's why the Bible says, whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are praiseworthy, honorable, think upon those things because you determine what you think about. That's why happiness, when it comes to God's way, it requires courage. It is achieved with courage. Admitting that you're not happy, friend, requires courage courage. It requires you to have a little bit of a little bit of utzpah, a something inside you, a little bit of guts and have courage. So let's have a happy meter right now. We're going to take a test. This is a thermometer of how happy you really are. So I'm going to start over this side. I'm going to go here, here, and we're going to end up over here. So between one and 10, let's decide on the meter of happiness. How happy are we? Let's say this side over here, you're zero to two. You are absolutely miserable all the time. So give me that face of misery. Some of you don't need much practice. Look at you. Over here, this side, you're not zero to two. You're two to four. You are more unhappy than you are happy. So kind of give me the, give me that look. Some of you are real good at that too. Okay, over here, we're not zero to four. Over here, we're six to eight, five to six. That means we're kind of wrestling between being unhappy and happy. Kind of depends on what we're going through. So I want you over here just to kind of look at me and do this. Okay, you're doing pretty good. That's most people. Over here, this side, now we're getting better. This side is always happy. Let me get a smile from this side over here. Look at you, y'all look awesome. Now this little corner over here, this is nine to 10. They are happy all the time. They are either supremely spirit-filled or on drugs. So between zero and between 10, from absolute misery and maybe or perhaps being on some narcotics, where do you fall in this equation? (laughs) I'm doing drug tests in the hallways at the end of the service. Where do you fall? How happy are you? And are you willing to be happy? That's the next question. Are you willing? Because some people are not willing to be happy. It's a husband talking to his wife, asking her to fix two eggs and demanding that one egg is fried and the other egg be boiled. So the wife, she submits, she's nice. She goes and cooks the eggs. One she fries, the other she boils. She takes the plate, gives it to her husband, puts it down on the table, and the husband says, you fried the wrong egg. I mean, you know, he's not willing to be happy. 
He's not really wanting happiness. And then there are people who say, well, oh, man, Joey, you just don't know the trouble and, and you don't know the circumstances and don't know my circumstances and the trouble I'm going through. You're right. And I don't want to. And the reason I don't want to, because if you are controlled by your circumstances, you're never going to be happy because your circumstances will be up one day and down the next. You'll be on an emotional roller coaster. You're going to change moods with the winds that blow by. You're going to have a long, miserable life. You can be in the storm, but the storm doesn't have to be in you. The ship that's in the sea, it's not the problem. It's when the, she, the sea gets in the ship when you get yourself a problem. So here are some places that you can truly find happiness. One place you find happiness is peace with God. Because the Bible tells us that Christ made peace between God and between man. That he reconciled us with God the Father. Peace is a fruit of reconciliation with God. The Bible says we're justified by this thing called faith. That's what brought you here today. You thought you just came because you were forced. Faith brought you here. You got up, got dressed, fixed your hair. Well, I didn't, but you did. You fixed yourself up, got all dudded up, and came because you got faith. Faith is currency. Faith is the currency of heaven. The Bible says without this currency called faith, it is impossible to please God. Therefore, you've got to believe that God is, and he is what? A rewarder, a rewarder of those that seek him. So therefore, you've got to establish something right off the bat to be happy, that Christ has made peace between God and man. What he did for you at Calvary, it brings to us a position of strength, which is a position of peace, but it requires you doing something, resting. So often when we make these mistakes and when we blow it, we don't get peace because we lose our position of strength, which is a position of peace because we lose the fellowship with God. God's never lost fellowship with us, but because of circumstances, we lose fellowship with God. That's why God put a fail-safe system in place for when you mess up and when you blow it, you're not to run from God, you're to run to God. And when you mess up and when you blow it, here's how simple it is. Father, I thank you that you're for me and you're not against me. I confess that I messed up and blow it, Lord. And you said when I confess it, you're faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. See, that's 1 John 1, 9. That's when you give those things over to God. Why? So the peace of God that surpasses all understanding can guard your heart and guard your mind. There's no happiness without peace. And there's no peace without reconciliation with God. That's important to know. Remember, Remember when the prodigal son in Luke 15 was out in the world? The prodigal was out living wild. It didn't say he was, he was doing all this crazy stuff. He just was out in the world. And the Bible says something happened. He went back to his father and he reconciled with him. But immediately the scriptures say, after he got it right with his father, the scriptures say something amazing. They began to be merry. There was joy that filled the house. Why? Because there was peace between him and his father. Friends, there will never be peace in your home until you make it right with God. That's the number one priority that all people must do is get it right with God. That's how you have peace. There's no merriment until you get it right with the father. And there'll be no merriment in our lives until we get it right with God the father. No matter how we make mistakes, if we just confess it and get it right. You're in right relationship with God. That's so important. It's also important after you have right relationship with God to have a right relationship with your family. God intended it for it to be that way. 
It intends uh, God's intention for us to be a, a good relationship with our family, not always having them over for supper or spending all that time with family, but we're to love one another. We're to forgive one another. We're to be in right relationships with our family. How about husband and wives? The Bible says husbands love your wife, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for that church. That means husbands are to love their life, wives lavishly. They're to love them whether they deserve it or not, even on credit if you have to. You're to love. And then the wives are to submit themselves to the husband. And this is where religion starts to just jack everything up because God wants there to be equality. He wants us to be unified together, equal, co-laborers in the field of righteousness because of the grace of God. But so often when we start talking about these topics of right relationships, we think we need to overwhelm another. One needs to be submissive to another. That's not what the scriptures are declaring. The scriptures are declaring unity, that husbands are submitting to the wife's needs, and she is submitting to the husband's lead, and they're working together as co-laborers. And then the children are submissive to the parents, the scriptures say in the book of Psalms, happy is the man who has his quiver full. Some of you got way too much quiver and it's full of kids, but I want you to know it says happy are you. But husbands are to be what their wives want them to be and the wife is to be what the husband wants them to be. You get my point. Reminds me of a story of the husband and wife. They were having a little bit of troubles and the husband was reading the paper and the unexpected uh, frying pan hit the husband on the back of the head, knocked him cold. I mean, knocked him out. When he came back to his senses, he said, what'd you hit me for? The wife said, because in your pocket, I found a name, Mary Lou. He says, who is Mary Lou? The husband said, I got to be honest. That's the horse I've been betting on. I've been gambling. She says, okay, I forgive you. I'm, I'm sorry I hit you with the frying pan. A few weeks later, he's reading the paper again, this time a bigger frying pan. Whack! Knocked him cold when he finally came to. He said, what'd you hit me for again? She said, your horse called. That's <laughs> funny. I don't care who you are. But you have to realize God wants there to be in the marriage equality. If a man will never keep a commitment with God, ladies, you will not keep one with you. I don't care how good looking he is. I don't care how much he provides. If he treats you as less than, he's not God's will for your life. It's equal here. Remember how God established this. Now think about something today. I want you all to think about this. God created Adam. And out of Adam, he, he birthed Eve. He took Eve out of Adam's rib. And the scriptures say that was the beam, the beam of the home. The support system was Eve to take care of Adam and to help Adam, supporting one another. And that's Amazing because in the beginning, the woman comes out of the man. But God wants to show equality. So then he tells the, the childbirth in the book of Genesis that no longer would woman come out of man, but man would come out of what? Woman. To show you and I that we're equals in this together. Husbands, wives, men, and women, we're in this together, submissive one another to build the kingdom of God, to glorify the Lord. This is not unification as the world sees it. This is unification as the kingdom of God commands it to be. I, that was so good. I mean, some of your wigs just plow, plow. Just blew your wig back with that. I know, I got it like that. I get down like that. But not only is happiness found in peace with God and peace with family, but it's also found in work. 
when you discover that you were made to work, some of you are getting nervous right now, but it's so true. You were designed to work. The scriptures say in Psalms 128, he who eats the labor of his hands, happy are they. That means supremely blessed. It's godlike to work. Have you ever thought about something? And some of you may have never thought about this, but God says in his book that you were designed and created in his image. And that when you do things uh, for him, you're not doing them unto man. You're doing them unto what? God. So if you take that approach to everyday life, no matter if you're a stay-at-home mom, a working mom, a construction worker, a, a, a business owner, when you work, whether it's 40, 50, 60 hours a week, however long moms work 150,000 hours a week, no matter how long you're working, you're not doing it unto man. You're doing it unto God, and it's God-like. That's why the scriptures say without faith, it's impossible. And the scriptures say faith without this thing called works is dead. You have to learn that God says six days you're going to work because you are designed to work for God, not saved by works, but you're saved to do works in the great judgment of Christ, not the white throne judgment, but the judgment seat of Christ. When all believers come before the throne of grace and God says, present your works, present them to me and your works that you've done unto Christ, they will be burned with the refiner's fire and everything you've done for Christ, it will turn into precious stones and rubies and it it describes all this purification factor of gold. But things that we did not do for Christ, it's burned up wood, hay, and stubble. God wants you to know you're not saved by works, but you're saved to do work. A job, it's what you're paid for, but a calling, your work is what you're made for. you were made for more. So when you get up in the morning, you're not doing it unto man. You're doing it unto God. Some of you just need to get that in your spirit. That's what the tithe and offerings about. Some of you miss the greatest opportunities of your life because you think that God wants something from you. When God doesn't want anything from you, he wants to get more things to you. And he wants you to know your work is a reflection of his goodness and you did it unto him. That tithe, that offering is a reflection of God's goodness over your life that he gave you the strength, he gave you the mental fortitude, he gave you the legs, he gave you the arm, he gave you the car, he gave you the house, he gave you everything. Everything he gave you your children. So he wants you to be recognized of that. And that's why happiness is found in those things. It's also found in hope. We talked about that last week. But what are the causes of unhappiness? One of the great causes of unhappiness, and this is so true, even in this room this morning, is neurotic guilt. It causes unhappiness. The inability to receive or accept forgiveness of God. It's neurotic guilt. And some of you at the sound of my voice have trouble receiving forgiveness because you blow it. You make mistakes. It's a sense of wrong. It drives a person that they must be punished. See, some people, they get raised in church and they get raised in legalism and certain denominationalism. And they have this nagging feeling if they mess up and if they blow it, that God's angry at them. God's mad at them. Some of you have even been taught that if you do something, God forbid, and Jesus is to come back, you're going to split hell wide open. I don't believe that for a moment. I don't believe that as sure as I'm standing here. But neurotic guilt from the enemy comes and puts condemnation on you. This nagging feeling of a sense of wrong. It drives a person to feel that they can't get to the next level. They can't get past that divorce. They can't get past that uh, separation. They they can't get past that, that betrayal because they feel guilty. They did something wrong in that relationship. No, you didn't do anything wrong. If you needed them, they'll still be here. You didn't need them. 
that's why God says, I've got something new for you. But this demonic guilt starts to come and people are sitting in this audience and there's a dark page in your life. Maybe perhaps a dark chapter and it's in your past. It's a haunting, nagging thought that God hasn't forgotten it and God hasn't forgave it. But I want you to understand that defies the message of the cross. When you confess your sin, no matter if you've been saved for one minute or 37 years, when you confess it, God says, I bury it in the deepest sea, never to be brought against you anymore. It's over as far as the east is to the west. It's been taken from you. It's over. It's forgotten. It's forgiven. In Jesus' name, get over. God has nothing new for you. But this neurotic guilt, that's why Christ went to the cross, to take your punishment so you don't have to beat yourself up. I meet so many people, they love God with all their heart, but they get raised in a certain legalistic lifestyle, and it's hard for them to receive the grace of God. For those of us who are not raised in church, it's a lot easier for us to accept that because that's just what we know, because that is what we receive. But some people that got told by some mental midget, some person that used the word of God and took it out of context and did it for their own misunderstanding and their own authoritative manner, and try to capture people with legalism and law and keep them in their little church. They try to drive that feeling of pain, that feeling of remorse, that feeling of condemnation. So now you can't pray enough. You can't pray 57 hours a day. You can't do enough. You can't sacrifice enough. But I'm telling you, that's Satan's lie. That's a demonic lie. God's grace is greater than all your failure and greater than all your sin. You're a child of God. The royal blood of heaven flows in your veins. You are somebody because Jesus Jesus Christ died to set you free. Oh, man, some of y'all are just running around this building. That's such good news. Some of you are just sitting there like a toad. Uh, I love you anyway. Now think about this, but it causes unhappiness when we live in this type of guilt. There's also another cause of unhappiness. It's uncontrolled anger. Uncontrolled anger literally zaps you from your God-given destiny. All throughout the Bible, friends, there are people, men of God, who fulfilled the will of God with what I would call righteous anger. When Jesus entered into the temple with twisted rope in his hand, he drove out the money changers. He drove out the religious false teaching. He drove out that stuff, and he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. It, it literally showed us that anger sometimes and when it's on display can be love's purest form. Anger, when it's directed by the Holy Spirit, when it's harnessed by God, can be love's purest form. Righteous anger. But some people don't have that righteous anger. They have uncontrolled anger. It eats away at their stomach. We know it's uncontrolled because it gives birth to an ulcer. It manifests itself with constant criticism of under, other people. Uncontrolled anger causes you to constantly fault-find. Fault-finding is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's a demon spirit. And if all you're looking for is fault, fault is what you will find. In a family member, in a spouse, in a pastor, in a church, in a community, if all you're looking for is fault, fault is what you will find. And it's driven with this issue of uncontrolled anger. It's important to know because it causes people to have rage, but without reason. Rage, but without reason. It destroys your life. Anger that is uncontrolled. It always destroys the one who is angry. It's a boomerang. When you sling it, it always comes back and takes your own head off. That's why it's important to 
explain your anger and not express your anger. And you'll be amazed on how the doors of opportunity open up and the solutions come instead of arguments. When you explain it and don't express it, it takes away your happiness. The scriptures say, let all bitterness, let all wrath, all anger and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. You'll never know happiness, friends, when you have that cancer of uncontrolled anger eating you alive. It's been said, it's not what you're eating, it's what's eating you that makes all the difference. And it's so true. There's another cause of unhappiness, that's selfishness. Do you know that selfish people are never happy? Have you ever met a selfish person who's happy? I haven't. Selfishness is the excessive preoccupation with oneself. That's that person that lives in the, let me take a selfie. I mean, if you got one of those sticks everywhere you go, if all your profile and all your pictures on your social pages are all of you, you've got some issues with selfishness. This selfishness has, has invaded the church of Jesus, and now people would live with this attitude. What can the church do for me? What can they do for me? What can they do more of my family? God wants to do something in you, but first he's got to do something in you and through you before he'll do everything for you. He's got to do it in you first before he'll do it for you. But many people with this selfish mentality, they say, oh, let's just do this. I'll do this. Let's do, help me, help me, help me. And God says, get rid of that selfie mentality. Get rid of this. Let me take a selfie. Get rid of that old stinking thinking. It's not always about you. Newsflash. And we're not always talking about you. Oh. If you're the person that, if they're watching an NFL game and they're in the huddle and you turn to your friend and say, they're talking about me, you are selfish. <laughs> That's funny. Now that one made me laugh because it's so funny. Thank you, one of you. The rest of you, I don't know what's happening. But do you know selfishness manifests itself with what's called in the first century hedonism? Hedonism is simply put like this. The definition of hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure, self-indulgence. It happens when people get involved and they only want what they want because they're selfish. That's a true story that I read years ago about a man in the pursuit of happiness. He rejected his wife. He rejected his two children. They were beautiful. They were young at the time. He dumbed down all his responsibilities and he took off on a pleasure cruise. And he said, quote, I've earned the right to have fun after all these years of keeping my commitment. It's my time for me. When this guy came to his senses like the prodigal son, he realized that his so-called freedom wasn't freedom at all, but a new kind of bondage. He discovered that he had been much happier with the responsibility and commitment to his wife and his children than he had been running to the four corners of the earth. But it was too late it was too late to recover what he had thrown away and his family. In a moment of deep despair and depression, this man who went on a pleasure cruise because it was all about him took his own life because he was his own God. A person that's wrapped in their own self makes a very small package. 
And that's important to know because a self-made man is not very large at all. You can tattoo it on your hand all you want to, but I call you a very small package when you think you can do it on your own. Living a self-centered life will destroy your life every single time. That's why I believe real happiness is when you take responsibility. That's what Churchill said. Responsibility is the key to greatness. It's what we do at the city center. Many of you don't. You've never even been over there. But can I tell you, we've taken on the city's issues and we've taken responsibility. We have the largest youth program in all of San Joaquin Valley in three short months. Why? Because we've taken responsibility and said, somebody's got to go out and get them. Somebody's got to give them a place. You say, well, there's other programs, but there are programs that give them the love of the Lord, the calling of God, the good things of the Lord, and the safe environment. You see, friends, there's something about taking responsibility that causes greatness to come. Taking responsibility is like taking a chance. When you take the chance, you either, you either will succeed or you'll fail, but you'll never make an impact without the attempt of failure and out, without making yourself vulnerable to failure. You have to realize failure is the fertilizer of success. If you want to succeed in life, you've got to take responsibility, even if you have the ability to fail in that responsibility. See, some of you need to take on that new relationship. You need to take on that area. You need to take it on and take responsibility and do everything God created you to do and become because he wants you to take responsibility so you can have greater blessings. As we close our time, are you getting anything out of this this morning? I know you are. Thank you so much for being here. Not only are causes of unhappiness a place of neurotic guilt, a place of absolute selfishness, a place of not having good relationships, but here's the last one. And I think this one is so important. The fatigue. When fatigue comes in, there is what I call spiritual fatigue. And then there's physical fatigue when you're just physically tired. Single moms know that one real well. They take on the role of mom, dad, counselor, commander, chief, CEO, CFO. They take on provider provision and set the pattern. And what happens is fatigue sets in. It sets in. There's spiritual fatigue. I'm describing some of you right now. There's physical fatigue. Do you know we live in a pressured society? We lead hurried, hassled lives. Some of you just can't wait to get out of church because you got stuff to do. You're living hurried and hassled. It's so true. The days of old, when I was a youngster, when you went outside and the, you stayed gone until the streetlights came on, you came home. Those days are over. Now as children, you got to take them to this practice, this practice. You can't let them come over to that house because they, they might have Uncle Cray Cray up in there. I can't have them over there. I'll end up going crazy. I have to make sure everything's protected, everything's lined up. And now the pressure's on. The pressure's on. Fatigue, it's the enemy of happiness. Fatigue. Now think about this. Because we, we don't sleep enough. We don't rest enough. See, some of you live with your cell phones. I don't know. You should stop that in Jesus' name. Don't have it as your wake-up clock. Turn your phone off. You need to rest. You don't rest enough. We become adrenaline addicts. 
caffeine, get hooked up, then we splat, we're down. We run from this thing to that. Now, now think about this, because this destroys health. It destroys families, relationships, worry, depression, fear, anxiety, stress. Those things are more exhausting than manual physical labor. If you've ever been under those things, they're exhausting. Heavy physical work sometimes can be the most blessed thing you can do. But stress and worry, it takes the impact off your mind and your body like none other. It starts to just impact you. You know what else fatigue does? Makes you cranky, makes you angry, makes you irritable. You thought that was your, no, it's, it's, it, they're fatigued. It makes you intolerant. That's how you know you're fatigued. You're irritable. You're, see, some, I, you, you said, I've been fatigued since 1972. Maybe, I don't know. But it makes you incapable of patience. I really struggle with that one because when I was looking up the analogies of fatigue, I went, am I fatigued? Because I'm incapable of patience. And so I'm going, man, am I fatigued? Somebody lay hands on me. But I had to realize, no, I'm just impatient. That's a fruit of the Spirit I don't operate in at the moment, but I'm getting better. But all of us need to recognize the signs. Because when I looked at the other signs of fatigue and I went, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm on point. When you're fatigued, you find it hard to give love and you find it harder to receive love. And I went, okay, I'm not fatigued because I can give love and I receive love. See, some of you just really need to re put the love on me. I receive it well. But fatigue is the enemy of happiness. Do you know Jesus rested? God rested? You need to learn to rest. Now, for those of you that are thinking, well, how can I? Then start focusing on the major things. And don't let the devil make the minor thing a major thing. Because it's so easy to get caught up and focus on this. It's so major, but really it's a minor thing. When the things of God are major, resting in God is major. Coming to the house of God is major. Taking your kids to church is a major thing. And what happens is the devil's a liar. Oh, and now I got me time, family time. No, you need to put God time because so you can find rest in him. I'm not saying there's not times to go on vacation and all that stuff, but I'm just saying some of you got your priorities all messed up and you need to learn the signs of what is robbing your happiness. And it's so important. I think it's important. That's why happiness is a choice. Abraham Lincoln was our 16th president. And he said, after the most difficult time in America's history, father against son, brother against father, the nation was, you think it's divided politically now, it was divided physically with death. And here's what this guy said. He said, I'm convinced beyond all other convincing. This is in the, the conclusion of this civil war where people were dying. He said, I'm convinced beyond all other convincing that people are just as happy as they make up their minds to be. King David said, happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help. You have to choose happiness. You have to choose Jesus. You have to make that decision every day and decide what it is you're going to become.